Is it just me, or did the public's perception of agriculture change over the last year? I know I spent a lot of time in the Farm Solutions or Climate Solutions echo chamber, but I feel I hear less and less about how agriculture is an ecological disaster, and more and more about regenerative agriculture or soil carbon sequestration. It's like the public has finally given agriculture a chance to show how it can shrink its carbon footprint and build thriving farms and ranches at the same time. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're going to discuss the Climate Farm Plan. So we're riffing off the name Environmental Farm Plan with the title of this episode. I've never actually had a complete an environmental farm plan before, but I have seen the binder and that does look like a lot of paperwork to fill out. Still, it's pretty hard to apply to CAP's environmental stewardship and climate change program if you don't fill out an environmental farm plan, if you don't complete an environmental farm plan. Plus, if you're a producer and you have goals of protecting riparian areas, regenerating soil, giving biodiversity a boost on your land, having a plan sounds like a pretty good idea to me. And the exact same thing applies to a climate farm plan. So if you're a producer who has a goal of reducing the carbon footprint of your farm or providing your community with clean energy or just building more resiliency into your farmer ranch to get through floods or droughts, having a plan, once again, sounds like a good idea. Now, as far as I know, there is no such thing as a climate farm plan. In fact, we're going to make one up on the fly right here. But to help us out, I interviewed Darren Qualman of the National Farmers Union, who wrote the Tackling the Farm Crisis and Climate Crisis Report. came out about a year ago. You may recall in episode 29, I read parts of that report. The report isn't a plan per se, it's a set of recommendations. Recommendations Canada could use to tackle the farm income crisis and the climate crisis at the exact same time. Which does bring us to point number one of our made-up-on-the-fly climate farm plan. Our plan cannot just be about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's an important part of the plan, don't get me wrong. But if done right, this plan can shrink the carbon footprint of agriculture and build strong and thriving farms and ranches in Alberta and across Canada. So we're off to a pretty good start for our plan. All right, let's get to know Darren and the NFU a little bit better. Then we'll go back to building out our plan. Darren Coleman, I'm Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action with the National Farmers Union, and I'm located just a half hour south of Saskatoon. Okay. A town that we've heard of? Dundurn. Dundurn. Okay. I can't say I've heard of it, but I'm also quite new to the prairies as well. Um, so uh, your position in the NFU, what, could you explain it a little bit more, what you do exactly? Yeah, um, I'm uh, the Director of Climate Crisis Policy in Action, so I'm in charge of all of the NFU's uh, climate work. Uh, we're doing everything from research around emissions reduction and, and climate impacts. We're working with government to try and find uh, new programs and policies to work with farmers to support emission reduction. We're working with farmers to try and uh, raise awareness about uh, about how 
climate solutions can have other benefits in terms of soil and income and just generally uh, put farmers in a bit of a leadership position so that they're prepared to deal with a lot of what's what's coming uh, in, in the coming decades as Canada tr strives to reduce emissions first by 30% and then to get to uh, uh, emissions net zero by 2050. Okay. And and for you, it's a relatively new position, right? You just started about six to eight months ago, was it? Yeah, about eight or nine months ago. That's right. Okay. Okay. And up until that point, you were more of a researcher writer? Yeah. I uh, I spent a lot, much of the last 10 years uh, researching and writing. I came out with a book in 2019 called Civilization Critical Energy, Food, Nature, and the Future. Okay, cool. Uh, and uh, your personal connection to agriculture, if you have one. I suppose we all do because we eat food, but I did get the impression you uh, grew up on a farm and currently are living on a farm. Yeah, I grew up farming. Uh, my grandfather kept cattle. He had a herd of uh, Hereford cattle. Uh, my father was a mixed farmer, so I grew up feeding cattle and, and raising grains, oilseed, pulses, um, specialty crops, every, you know, coriander, spices, all sorts of things, very diverse. And uh, I farmed uh, into my 30s. Mm. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to ask this question, but any particular reason you decided to uh, stop farming? Um, I, yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, as farms get bigger and uh, there comes a point where in that intergenerational transfer that you really, really have to make sure that you're deeply committed because the the expenditures become so large mm. uh, you know going past six figures it sometimes into seven and uh i think in our family we just decided that uh you know given the the many things that we were all doing that uh probably investing that much into the farm wasn't uh wasn't what we wanted to do at that time okay so right. did you guys sell off or are you just renting your land we rented it out. I'm still on the uh, I'm still on the farm where we farmed, and then we rented out the land. Okay, cool. All right, thanks. Uh, let's uh, jump into the NFU. Um, I think for a lot of folks, uh, when they think of a union, they think of like QP and uniform stuff like that. So, a, a national farmers union. What does that do for agriculture producers? Yeah, the NFU, National Farmers Union, is quite different from the normal unions. We're more a farm policy organization. But the, the union in the name is significant because uh, we are, like a union, we're a direct membership organization. We don't have delegates the way some organizations do. We're a direct membership organization. Farmers themselves really are the organization, the body, uh, very much a democratic organization. Farmers come together every single year. Every single uh, official has to stand for election. Policies are debated. So it, it, it is a union in the sense that uh, it, it's not sort of at arm's length. It's the actual people doing the work, getting in there and structuring it and, and giving direction to the, the organization. Okay. I actually, I've been to, I think, two of, um, I guess, your AGMs or the, the, the conferences you have at the end of the year. And I learned a lot about democracy, actually, just being there as an observer. It was really interesting. It is a boot camp for direct participation in democracy. You will learn Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, people are up at the microphone making, making amendments. The chairing is amazing. It is really the, the 
best version of direct democratic participation and, and policy formulation I've ever seen at any organization I've ever ever participated in. It's it's truly amazing. It, NFU conventions are the most interesting and enjoyable events that happen in Canada any in any <laughs> given year. So what's it like to be at an NFU convention? I've actually been to two. Uh, the first one I went to was in Ottawa. It was actually shortly after I got this job. And the last one I went to was in Winnipeg uh, when this report was released. It is a lot like an agriculture conference. It's smaller, but way more participatory. And, you know, you do the same networking things and you catch up with old friends over coffee. I think the thing that makes it different from an agriculture conference it is the passion in the room for the organization hosting the conference or the conventions on so this case in the N is the NFU. It's palpable. As an outsider, as I was both those times, you really get the sense that NFU members really believe in the organization and they really want to see the organization succeed. I have to admit, too, as a guy who spent a lot of his adult life uh, lone wolfing it, it was pretty cool to tap into that feeling for a few days. And uh, just for folks that aren't really uh, familiar with the history of the NFU, like uh, how long has it been around for? Maybe how did it get started? The National Farmers Union was founded by a federal act of parliament in 1969. So was that 52 years ago? Okay. Uh, but its roots go back uh, more than a century, back to the territorial grain growers. There's actually a direct line of descent from the territorial grain growers and several then provincial farm unions, and they came together to form the National Farmers Union in 1969, uh, amalgamation of farmers unions in uh, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and elsewhere. Okay, okay. And uh, any successes of then if you you'd like to highlight i know you guys have had a few so uh, I, you could pick your favorite one or your top three uh. oh well okay um not not an exhaustive list for sure but just what comes to mind uh in terms of where the nfu really really led and was decisive in the outcome genetically modified wheat monsanto wanted to genetically modify uh, the canadian wheat supply and what we heard was that the buyers around the world didn't want it. Uh, the farmers didn't want it. There was, there was just a, nobody seemed to want it except Monsanto, yet it, it seemed to be going ahead. And uh, the NFU led a, and built a broad coalition, and we stopped genetically modified wheat. Uh, similarly, uh, bovine growth hormone in the Canadian milk supply. The NFU really took point on that and, and became part of a larger coalition that included non-farmers, etc., and for that reason, America approved bovine growth hormone, genetically modified hormone for the milk supply, and Canada didn't did not. Uh, just a, just a couple more uh, ongoing fight, and we're currently winning it. Although it's it's really uh, ongoing. Farmers' right to save and reuse seed. The NFU's really taken a lead role in pushing back against industry efforts to really privatize this. And, and make it illegal for farmers to save and reuse their seed and impose a whole bunch of mechanisms whereby farmers are prevented from doing that or they're, they're charged a fee each and every year that they do it. And the last one I'll, I'll note, uh, because many of the farmers will be aware of this, the, the NFU, probably more than any other organization, spearheaded the fight to uh, keep the Canadian Wheat Board. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I, I guess some would see that as, as not a success, but we won that fight year after year after year. And had we not engaged in that and organized farmers around that, the weed board would have been lost years or decades earlier. And, and that would have cost farmers uh, billions of dollars in, in lost revenue. So that uh, that was an important fight. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize they were trying to eliminate the weed board for so long. Mm. It was various government bills uh, and, and they were taking it away. They, they First they took oats and then they, they wanted to take barley and we pushed that one back. And here's the thing. The, the NFU really won that fight. Uh, we would always say to government when they would take another run at the wheat board, uh, just have a farmer vote. And even to the very end, we knew that the farmers were on side and that we would win any farmer vote around the termination of the wheat board. And that's why they had to go ahead without a farmer vote. How did the report come about? I think it was around 2015 or 16, just in conversation with farmers and digging into the research uh, and, and just thinking about the NFU had long thought about the farm crisis. We had written many reports in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s about the farm crisis. And we knew, and we'd been working on climate for almost as long. We, we have written materials on climate change, NFU intervening in, the, in federal politics around climate change going back into the 1990s. But as we really started to, to focus in on climate in recent years, we started to see a lot of intersection between the farm income crisis and the, the emissions problem in the climate crisis. For much of the writing, this was even before I joined the NFU, so it was sort of uh, a side project that had come out of previous NFU work. The, the writing itself, it, it took several months, but the background research really occurred over several years. I did the actual writing, uh, but a report like this really wouldn't have been possible had, had there not been a National Farmers Union, had there not been decades of ongoing conversation and, and deep analysis, deep analysis sort of spread out amongst the farm population so that, that we could come together in conversations and, and analysis and, and, and really uh, figure out what was going on and, and how, uh, how the emissions were caused by certain structures and certain decisions made within farm policy and farm practice. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I did the writing, but it really could be seen as a, as a real team effort among farmers, uh, NFU members, and, and many of those NFU members are among the the, the deepest thinkers and the, and the best farm policy analysts I've ever had the privilege of working with. Yeah, that's great. Uh, leading me to my next question, how was the experience? Um, the experience was good. Uh, we, yeah, uh, it was incredibly well received. That was very heartening. It continues to be uh, cited and talked about uh, a full year after the year and a half, almost after the release. And uh, the experience was so positive that we're doing it again. Uh, the NFU is hoping to release a new report on agriculture, climate, and emissions and emission reduction, uh, hopefully as soon as February. Well, that's great. I look forward to reading it. 
And uh, the, the question or the impossible question to answer, I suppose, if you were to summarize the report in one sentence, what would that sentence be? It can be a very long run-on sentence, if that's better. Okay, well, imagine this, instead of this being four sentences, imagine it being one long sentence with some really tricky punctuation. So uh, as, as briefly as I could, I would say this is the report. Agriculture does not produce greenhouse gas emissions. Agricultural inputs produce greenhouse gas emissions. And we know that for sure, because for thousands of years, farmers farmed, and they didn't affect the atmosphere, and they didn't affect the climate. But over the last 100 years, as input use went up and up, emissions went up and up. And what that means, the, the inescapable conclusion is this, any low emission agricultural system will have to be a low input agricultural system. Agriculture does not produce greenhouse gas emissions. Agricultural inputs produce greenhouse gas emissions. Just uh, take a moment and let that one sink in. Darren does explain that one in a bit more detail later on in the interview, but one clarifying point, pretty much everything produces greenhouse gas emissions. Cows do it when they burp, plants do it when they die, me and you do it when we exhale. But before the Industrial Revolution, the amount of greenhouse gas emissions being produced was a bit more manageable for the Earth. The Earth was able to draw quite a bit of that out of the atmosphere, put it in the soils, put it into forests, put it into oceans. I'm not too sure if it was technically net zero back then, but it must have been pretty darn close. Like I said, Darren's going to explain that one a little bit later on in more detail. We're going to move on to point number two of our climate farm plan, support the family farm. Yeah, the, the National Farmers Union, if it has a mission statement, it is preserving the family farm as the primary unit of food production in Canada. You know, the family farm, if you look back over history, if you look at other countries, it, it, they haven't always been organized with local families owning the land, running the farms, etc. They've had various ways of organizing them. But the fairly broad distribution of farmland that we have and, and ownership and control by, by local families that we can talk to and that we know and that are our families, that, that's really unique and we think it's really, really valuable that we don't lose that. But the trend lines don't look good. You know, if you look at the, the loss of farmers, how fast we're losing farmers, if you look at the loss of young farmers especially, and, and just to say a little bit about that loss of young farmers, Statistics Canada has been keeping data on farmers under the age of 35 just since 1991. And in that 30 or so years, Canada has lost two-thirds of its young farmers. And if we don't find ways to reverse that and get young people back into agriculture, farming as a whole in Canada is going to go off a demographic cliff. Mm -hmm. If there aren't young people in the countryside on farms participating in intergenerational transfer, the, the farms that they've left become terminal and they become part of growing consolidation and we see that consolidation all around us so that's another trend line uh there's lots of i'll just sort of focus on a couple more mm. uh, debt 
debt is doubling and arm debt is doubling and redoubling. Uh, it's up over a hundred billion dollars now. Farmers are transferring uh, three to four billion dollars a year to uh, banks and lenders right now to pay interest on their debt. And that debt, I think it's right in saying it's gone up every year in the last 20 or 25. So a, a long, very uh, d- disturbing trend line there in debt. And uh, farmland concentration, uh, fewer and fewer. If you look at sort of who owns and controls the lion's share of farmland, uh, that's fewer and fewer farmers all the time, more and more concentration. So when we look at these trend lines, if you don't do anything to change them, and you just sort of follow them into the future, two or three generations, uh, the the prospect for family farms aren't good. But what climate change does is it disrupts those trend lines. It disrupts the the, the plans of of corporations, the way they've structured agriculture, et cetera. So we don't discount the amount of risk and uncertainty and concern that climate change can bring. But what we also say in our report is that climate change forces upon us a whole bunch of changes and transformation. And if farmers get in front of this and take the lead and take control there's a chance, and it's just a chance. It might it might not work, but there is a chance that we can reverse a lot of these trend lines, and in so doing, we can we can really save the family farm. It's it's probably one of our it's probably our last best chance to save the family farm. Hmm. Okay, thank you. And uh, with this follow up question, I'm very much playing devil's advocate here, but say we just want to solve climate change, agriculture's got a role to play. What's wrong with corporate farms or agribusesses that practice climate farming, uh, climate-friendly agriculture? Could we just do that and just forget about the whole family farm thing? Sure, and that's a that's a fair question. And, and one could imagine uh, solving the climate crisis and not solving the, the farm crisis and not saving the family farm. That might be possible. But just you know, if we think for a minute about the larger economy. Uh, you know, our, our parents or grandparents would have seen uh, cities and, and towns at, where just about everything was owned by local families. The butcher shop, the shoe store, the grocery store, the hardware store. At one time, when you went into a, a community in Canada, those communities were owned and controlled by the local family. Now, that's almost completely untrue. The the local hardware stores are gone. The local shoe stores are largely gone. Um, you know, clothing stores, what have you. The one exception to that is the family farm sector. The family farm sector is the last place where local people own and control these enterprises. And and we think that if we lose that, it, it really matters because when you lose that. L- ownership and, and control by the local people. It has effects on whether you control your economy. It has it, it starts to erode and, and corrode democracy itself. Because as we know, those people who own the economy want to run the country. And if it's not local families anymore and local people, um, it, it gets harder to uh, it's harder to maintain that democratic control. So I, I think there's just a whole bunch of reasons 
that we want to retain that ownership and control amongst the, you know the people that we live and work beside. In the report, it's really about addressing those those two crises. So we got the farm crisis and the climate crisis. Could you just um, go over some of the causes that those two crises have in common? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the the final answer, and then I'll sort of work around to it again. And that is the farm income crisis and the emissions problem have the same underlying cause, and that is farmers being made over-dependent on purchased inputs. So if you were to look at a farm income graph, for instance, and we've got data now going back uh, almost 100 years, uh, gross revenues on the farm go up and up and up, but net income doesn't. And net income in recent decades has crashed down to zero and some years below. Mm. But that top line goes up and the bottom line doesn't. And what that means is the gap between farmers' revenues, the money they get when they sell crops and livestock, et cetera, and what they have left after they pay their bills, that gap gets bigger and bigger. And that gap represents the money that farmers give to pay their bills, what they spend on expenses, uh, inputs, uh, money they give over to deer and Nutrien and Bayer and other farm input sellers. So what's happening is farmers are giving up more and more money for inputs and keeping less and less for themselves. So, so really the farm income crisis isn't caused by uh, lack of production, lack of revenue, lack of sales. Farmers are very, very productive now. It's caused by the fact that farmers have to give over about 95 cents out of every dollar to pay for inputs, fertilizer, fuel, chemicals, machinery, interest on bank loans, accounting fees, that sort of thing. So the uh, farm income crisis really is caused by the, the extraction of wealth and, and, and farmers being too dependent upon purchased inputs. But emissions have really the same cause. As farmers use more and more purchased inputs, fuel, fertilizer, etc., their emissions go up. So what we say in the report is as farmers become over-dependent on purchased inputs, uh, incomes go down, and emissions go up, and in effect, their, their net income is going up in smoke. Mm. So this is the part of the interview where Darren explains that statement that agriculture doesn't produce greenhouse gas emissions, agricultural inputs produce greenhouse gas emissions, bringing us to point number three of our climate farm plan, reducing dependency on chemical inputs. Some people will know we've, we've had agriculture on earth, far, farmers have farmed for about 10,000 years. But for 9,900 of those years, for 99% of the time, there was no effect on the atmosphere, no effect on the climate. And it's only in the last 100 years that agriculture has become a net source of greenhouse gas emissions. And not coincidentally, it's because in the last 100 years, farmers have adopted an ever-growing list of, of inputs, and most of those inputs are, are either fossil fuels or made from fossil fuels. So the, the emissions coming out of agriculture are a direct result of the inputs going into agriculture. Mm. And I'll, I'll just tell, I'll, I'll just sort of go over that in a little different way, and, and it helps to really illuminate the profound change in the last 100 years. So traditional agriculture, as practiced for thousands of years, 
really was a set of circular flows. Nitrogen went around in a circle, phosphorus, there was the water cycle, the carbon cycle, seeds produce plants and plants produce seeds. Um, even, you know, farmers farmed with horses back then and the horses would produce young horses and they'd grow up and work in the field and then they'd produce the horses themselves. And so everything was in a circle. There was no external flow of inputs into agriculture. Everything that went into farming came out of farming. And what happened over the last hundred years is one after another, those circular flows were broken open, stretched out, made linear, and input supply corporations found ways to push ever greater tonnage of inputs into one end in order to push ever greater tonnage of food out the other end. So uh, the first cycle that was broken open was the, the, the labor and work cycle on the farm. Before about 1918 and the introduction of tractors, farms provided their own energy for work and draft animals. Uh, the sun grew crops, uh, hay, grain, grass, and, and that grass and, and grain and hay was put into horses and the horses worked the farm. So the, the energy supply for the farm came from the farm. And I just want to assure everyone, I'm not in any way advocating horses for 21st century agriculture, but it, <laughs> it, is, it is very interesting to think about what has happened. So you had this circular exchange of energy on the farm that produced the, the energy that worked the farm. That was broken open around 1918, and ever larger quantities of fossil fuels were pushed in in order to run tractors. Uh, about a generation later, uh, fertility, those circular flows of nitrogen and phosphorus, they were increasingly supplanted by linear flows of fertility. Uh, nitrogen fertilizer factories, phosphorus mines, potassium mines opened up, and this linear flow of a fertility started feeding into agriculture. Chemicals, um, and then even things like seeds were linearized. So over the, the last hundred years, you get this breaking of circular loops, these linear flows, and the pushing ever larger quantities of inputs in, and you get ever larger quantities of emissions coming out, greenhouse gas emissions. So if you push in billions of liters of diesel fuel and gasoline into one end, out the other end comes millions of tons of CO2. If you push in millions of tons of nitrogen fertilizer, out the other end comes millions of tons of greenhouse gases, especially nitrous oxide. So it, it's important for farmers to understand the absolutely direct correlation. The inputs coming out of one, or the emissions coming out of one end are a direct function of the inputs going in the other end. And, and that's a foundational way of understanding the emissions problem on our farms. The, the narrative I just gave is much, it's more applicable to the crop production side. But remember, a lot of that crop production ends up being feed for livestock. Mm. So there's what we usually think of as emissions for livestock, but uh, a lot of grain ends up in livestock. Uh, you know, people have heard, you know, a huge fun portion of the uh, U.S. corn crop, for instance, you know, nobody's eating that corn. Uh, some of it ends up as sweetener, but a lot of it ends up as, as cattle feed. But 
Uh, you ask about the, the methane emissions, et cetera. Um, you know, that's a really interesting piece. Methane is a very interesting greenhouse gas. Uh, it's, it's a natural product in many ways, and it's also broken down very quickly in, in the ecosystem. And there's a lot of different ways of thinking about that. One of the things we point out is that farmers really need to do everything they can to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from cattle. Just like everybody in Canada needs to do everything they can in their sector to reduce emissions. But I'm not trying to sidestep this. Farmers have a responsibility to reduce uh, methane emissions from cattle by being efficient as they can, you know, feeding as well as they can, grazing as well as they can. Uh, but really the methane problem we have, the reason methane is a greenhouse gas problem is because there's so many sources and, the, and those sources are putting out so much methane so quickly. And it's really oil and gas that is, is the big problem here. And the methane emissions from oil and gas are largely preventable. It's uh, a question of, of leaking in many cases. There's just a lot of uh, methane, and many of you all know that uh, the main component of natural gas is methane. A lot of that just gets leaked out of valves and fittings and, and pipelines. A lot of it gets vented during uh, oil and, and uh, gas production, etc. And if we made a modest reduction in the methane coming out of cattle and a very significant reduction in the methane coming out of the oil and gas sector, the processes in the atmosphere that remove methane would actually begin removing it as fast or faster than we're producing it. And the methane concentrations in the atmosphere would actually start to fall. And that's not something that would happen with CO2. CO2, once you put it in the atmosphere there, it's going to stay for hundreds and some of it thousands of years. But methane, if we took some steps and they're not all that difficult, we could actually start to see those concentrations come down. And if you know all other things being equal, climate change would very significantly slow. So we need to work on a lot of fronts there on methane. So just circling back in a little different way, cattle do produce a greenhouse gas, methane. But so they're, they're in one way, they're an emissions problem, but they're also a climate solution in that when, when they graze on grassland, they help sequester carbon, they foster uh, the, the growth of those grasslands, the health of those grasslands. And, you know, in the absence of those cattle, probably a lot of that grass would be broken up and cropped, and then you'd have emissions from fuel and, and fertilizer, et cetera. So uh, the, how we manage cattle really determines the balance between whether it's going to be net positive or it's going to be net negative. And there, there are a lot of ways that we can graze and, and feed cattle and produce beef that, uh, that are actually very positive. Mm. The thing about agriculture, if we think about it properly, it's a part of ecology. And when we think about ecology, we realize again that everything is interconnected. And you can't just do one thing. You can't just try and do one thing at a time. You can't just focus on genetics or methane because everything's connected. And, uh, and you can't even just focus on one gas. You, know, you have to think about the whole system. You have to think about the animals, the soil, the grass, all of that together. So uh, 
genetics are one part, but we need to take a more holistic approach to all of this, kind of reducing it down to single variables like beef output tonnage or export dollars per year. It's part of the way we got into this problem mm. and, and putting all this, these ideas back together into a more holistic approach is the way we get out of it. I really dislike talking about methane on this podcast or, or any of the work that Rural Roots does. It seems anytime I bring the topic up, I offend either cattle producers or vegans, sometimes both at the exact same time. And I do get it. It is a very touchy issue for some people. Nonetheless, here's my attempt to explain the whole methane thing again. Methane is a pretty powerful greenhouse gas. And like Darren said, it does break down pretty quickly. It breaks down after about 10 years. But during that 10-year period, it's 86 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So what I mean by that is its potential to increase the planet's temperatures or its global warming potential is 86 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. From what I understand, when methane breaks down, it combines with oxygen to create CO2 and the leftover hydrogen atoms become something similar to water. With nitrous oxide, it's 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide over a 100-year period, though. If you want a more apples-to-apples comparison between methane and nitrous oxide, scientists say over a 100-year period, methane's global warming potential is about 20 times that of carbon dioxide. I have absolutely no idea what nitrous oxide becomes when it breaks down. I tried to look it up. I couldn't really find much. I'm just assuming that the nitrogen and the oxygen decide to go their separate ways. But Darren really hit the nail on the head there when he said the problem isn't methane per se. It's the fact that there's so many sources of methane out there right now producing so much methane. You could argue the exact same thing with carbon dioxide. You could kind of argue the same thing with nitrous oxide, but really a lot of nitrous oxide does come from the agriculture sector. But with greenhouse gases in general, it's the volume, it's the amount of greenhouse gases that we're producing. That's what makes it problematic. It's less to do with the fact that we're producing greenhouse gases to begin with. I hope that makes some sort of sense. Point number four of our climate farm plan is be a team player. If there truly is too many sources of methane out there, it's on agriculture, it's on oil and gas, it's on other sectors to do what it can to reduce the production of those emissions. And if you jump to page 58 of the report that Darren wrote, there's a really good paragraph there that summarizes what a climate compatible cattle sector could look like. I'll read it out right now. Here is a brief sketch of the solutions. People who are eating a great deal of meat need to eat less meat. The planet needs to host fewer cattle. At the same time, however, we need to create systems wherein a smaller number of cattle support a larger number of farmers and underpin sustainable incomes. And we need to ensure that those cattle are raised in enhanced management systems that maximize soil building, grasslands health, and other ecological benefits. Don't forget about point number one of our plan. The climate farm plan can't just be about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. 
Now, with the other problematic uh, greenhouse gas that comes from agriculture, nitrous oxide, we don't quite have that equivalent of, okay, the oil and gas sector could just produce less methane and then they'll make some space. I don't know what the equivalent would be for that for nitrous oxide. So if there isn't an equivalent for nitrous oxide, uh, how do we start reducing our nitrous oxide emissions in agriculture? Yeah, nitrous oxide is a very powerful greenhouse gas, about 300 times more powerful than CO2. So it really is a really is a problem. Uh, in terms of reducing nitrous oxide, one of the things we have to do is we have to stop increasing fertilizer tonnage. And the numbers are really quite shocking. Over the past 30 years, uh, to take a couple prairie provinces as examples, over the past 30 years, fertilizer tonnage in Alberta has doubled and fertilizer tonnage in Saskatchewan has quadrupled. So we've got these very, very strong upward trend lines uh, fertilizer use doubling and, and redoubling. And, and, and we, there's no way you can actually get nitrous oxide emissions under control if, if that's what you're doing with uh, fertilizer use tonnage. So the first thing is we have to realize that nitrogen fertilizer is a real emissions problem and we have to find ways to use it absolutely as carefully and efficiently as possible. Uh, so Nitri I'll just say a couple other things about how nitrogen is an emissions problem. It's actually, uh, nitrogen fertilizer is probably unique among all human materials and, and all human processes in that nitrogen fertilizer manages to be a major source of all three of the main greenhouse gases. So it produces nitrous oxide when you put it in the soil. The fertilizer factories that produce it uh, produce large quantities of, of carbon dioxide. In Manitoba, for instance, the largest single emitter of greenhouse gases in the whole province is a fertilizer factory, nitrogen fertilizer factory owned by the Koch brothers uh, in Brandon, Manitoba. Hmm. And uh, so that's nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide and, and methane. The main feedstock into producing nitrogen fertilizer is natural gas. And natural gas is predominantly methane, and a lot of that in the production of that gas, uh, there's a lot of methane released. Maybe a little bit less the case in Canada, although emissions are quite high. Uh, but you know, the European nitrogen uh, supply is largely made from uh, Russian natural gas, and huge emissions of methane there and other parts of the world. So, yeah, both. All three, methane, nitrous oxide, and carbon dioxide, are the result of uh, our fertilizer use. And as I said, we're doubling and quadrupling tonnage. So not surprising the emissions are going up. Hmm. But I think you asked about how we get them to go down. <laughs> we can get there, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, most people can probably think their way through how you would get them to go down. You know, efficiency is the first step. You, you have to figure out how to use uh, less fertilizer per ton of output. Or another way of saying that is you've got to use it efficiently so that for a given constant output, you can find ways to use a little bit less fertilizer each year and still maintain your yield. And that's, that's really a well-developed set of ideas. And, and some people have heard of the 4R nitrogen management uh, techniques. So the 4R stands for the right product or formulation put in the right place uh, at the right time 
at the right rate. So you just think about all the variables, you know, what kind of fertilizer am I putting in the ground? Uh, where in the ground am I putting it? What time of year am I putting it there? Because, you know, if you put it down in the fall, you'll probably get more emissions than if you put it down in the spring. And is the rate correct? Uh, am, am I putting on just enough or is there going to be excess nitrogen there? Because it's really that excess that leads to the emissions. So efficiency is one part. Unfortunately, efficiency alone probably isn't going to get that those tonnage numbers to start coming down. Uh, we all have more efficient cars, but uh, Canada in 2019 set a record for fossil fuel use. So efficiency by itself isn't probably going to be enough. We probably have to really work at uh, helping farmers find ways to use less nitrogen and find alternatives to nitrogen, things like uh, biological nitrogen fixation in legumes, for instance, changing the rotations a little bit, maybe using cover crops to capture some of that nitrogen so that it doesn't end up you know, leaving the system, those sorts of things. Hmm. Oh, thanks. At this point of the interview, I asked Darren, why is it that we're putting so much fertilizer on arable land still that large amounts are oxidizing, turning into nitrous oxide and being released into the atmosphere? It's something that's perplexed me for a long time, but I do have to remind myself, I've never done oil seeds, pulses, grains, anything like that. I'm very much a meat and potatoes farmer, like literally. I've just never been able to figure out with all the science, the data, the soil testing capabilities, the four R's. So let's see if I can remember them here. Right source, right rate, right time, right place. That nitrous oxide emissions are still increasing. So I asked Darren for his thoughts on the subject. But just before we get to that, I want to make it clear. I don't think it should be on grain producers to figure all that stuff out. The same way I don't think it should be on cattle producers to have this intricate and deep understanding of the science around soil carbon sequestration and how to interpret the data from soil measurements. In my ideal situation, you have somebody else doing that stuff. So like a scientist is doing those measurements, interpreting that data, showing the agriculture producer the results. Then the producer makes the management decision, decides whether to continue a practice, adjust a practice, drop one, pick a new one up in order to achieve the desired results. Whether those desired results are to increase organic matter or reduce nitrous oxide emissions. And uh, a farmer once said to me, if Canada and, and the federal government have a prime directive for agriculture, it's to maximize exports. And if your starting point for Canadian agriculture policy and the Canadian agricultural economy is to maximize exports, if you're in a maximum export paradigm, you're probably going to want to maximize yield and production. And that means you're probably going to want to maximize input use. So we've created this maximum export, maximum production, maximum input, and maximum emission food system. And now we're going to have to re-engineer that because the new imperative is that we need to reduce emissions. So, you know, everything's sort of aimed at production maximization. The other thing is fertilizer is cheap. I had a farmer point out, he he phoned me up and he said, uh, I just bought my fall fertilizer. And he says, it's 
cheaper than last year and cheaper than the year before that and probably the year before that. So I got data from the government of Alberta and I created a graph of uh, inflation-adjusted fertilizer prices. And uh, the last few years are much, much cheaper than, you know, the 2000s and most of the, the teens. So it's difficult to get people to conserve something if you're selling it cheaper and cheaper all the time. It's like gasoline. Uh, you drive by the pump and it's a buck a liter. You're not, uh, you're not uh, inspired to go buy a smaller car or an electric vehicle. Hmm. And uh, do you know the reasons why it's so cheap right now? Is it? Like anything to do with like I know with fracking that natural gas prices pretty much collapse or they went quite low if it has anything to do with that or efficiencies in the process I think cheap gas is part of it mm. um, usually what fertilizer companies do is they raise the price and when grain prices go up they raise the price in order to extract as much as they can they don't seem to be able to do that right now and that's something we want to find some time to look into. Uh, for a long time, for instance, you could actually graph U.S. corn prices and you could graph North American nitrogen prices and they track perfectly. Hmm. And there's no reason that they would. The only reason that they would track perfectly is if you had low competition in the fertilizer sector and they were using their market power to price according to what the market would bear. And when farmers were getting more for the crop, they could bear a higher price. Um, I think recently that connection's been broken a little bit. So maybe something's happening in the fertilizer sector, maybe some offshore imports that are disciplining them. But we have complete confidence that these very powerful transnationals will suppress competition to an extent that will allow them to once again begin pricing based on what the market will bear. For rural roots, we're very focused on, you know, farm solutions can be climate solutions and climate solutions tend to be farm solutions. Uh, I'm just curious what the on-farm benefits are for, we, we can break it into, you know, what's the benefit for a cattle rancher to adopt a climate-friendly agriculture? Uh, what's the benefit for a grain farmer? If you want to lump the two together, that's okay. I'll leave the question open to you. Sure. The... The thing that I think that's made our report tackling the farm crisis and climate crisis popular is because it, it really takes seriously the question of farm income. How can doing the right thing on emissions and climate also move us in the right direction on input? How can it make our margins better? And so the first benefit to cattle farmers, grain farmers, et cetera, is that, that we want to find ways to increase that farm income and there and in so doing, stop the, the, the expulsion of farmers, that there just will not be this push to uh, push farmers out and, and have more consolidation. So this more farms holding on and surviving and, and having sustainable incomes. One of the ways we want to do that is by making farmers less dependent on purchased inputs and thereby reducing emissions, we want to find ways to reduce, to increase their margins. So the data shows that uh, through the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, it eased a little bit in the, around 2008 and, and to about 2017, that it's kind of, that income's fallen again. 
But for much of the last 30 to 35 years, net farm income from the markets with government subsidies subtracted out, so the net farm income from the markets has been at or near zero. And the only way farmers have been able to hold on is through taking uh, public money in the form of farm support programs, and that's anywhere from two to five billion per year, taking on increasing debt. And I mentioned, you know, just what every year in the last 20 some debt has gone up and hasn't been repaid. Off farm income has helped. Then uh, people just drawing down their equity. Some farmers who don't plan on transferring to the next generation rather than replacing machinery, et cetera, they just draw down equity and that's what's allowed them to sort of get to the, their end point. So uh, the, the problem there is farmers just aren't allowed to keep enough of the, the money that they generate. So much of it's going to farm inputs. We think that a low input approach, a lower input approach has the potential to restore those margins back to where they were. So right now, farmers are keeping about five cents out of the dollar. Historically, farmers have kept 30, 40 cents out of the dollar. What a difference it would make today if we could find a way to produce grain and yet have farmers hold on to 30 or 40 cents out of the dollar. Even if production went down a little bit, and it doesn't have to, but even if it did go down a little bit, if the margins get a lot bigger, the amount farmers will have left at the end of the day will be significantly larger. So the first benefit is higher margins, and uh, more farmers on the land. Okay. Another way that farmers can benefit is a, a key idea here moving forward is farmers need to get more from biology and less from industry. And that means focusing on soils. Uh, if we adopt farm practices that build soils, those healthy, carbon-rich uh, soils that are full of soil organic matter, they're better at trapping water, they, they, they're spongier, they have more organic matter, so uh, especially as climate change intensifies and rains become more intense but less reliable, more sporadic, that soil that can capture and hold more water is really critical to producing crops. So a focus on soil building is really important. And soils rich in soil organic matter are just more fertile. Like everybody knows that the soil, when it was originally broken generations ago, was much more fertile than maybe it was in the 1970s or 80s. And a big chunk of the difference was just the depletion of that soil organic matter, the depletion of the carbon. So if we focus on soils, we can get more of the productivity and yield we need from the bi biology so that we have to spend less and give fewer dollars to industry in the form of uh, synthetic fertilizers, et cetera. So that, that's another benefit, that farmers will be made more self-sufficient and uh, you know, working with biology and those circular flows that I mentioned before, and less on those linear inflows of inputs and outflows of emissions and outflows of dollars. Um, other ways, um, a lot of the climate solutions are are real also solutions to making farms more productive and verdant and, and healthy and beautiful. So farms where I've been that, that really focus on grazing practices and rotational grazing uh, can often have significant improvements in, in the grass and the soil 
and uh, they're just beautiful and, and extremely productive. So that's another benefit. Um, a lot of farmers have a hard time making that transition, though, and cattle farmers especially, because the problem is the big packers and retailers are taking so much out of the, the, the retail dollar for beef and, and sending so little of that back to the farm. Farmers are impoverished and, and find a hard time making the investments they need to move to those more productive and more uh, resilient and climate-friendly systems. Um, so we, we need to help farmers make that transition. And uh, yeah, on the, on the grain side, again, a lot of the same benefits, self-sufficiency, margins, better soils, more from biology, less to industry, and uh, just starting to decouple and, and start to disentangle from these tremendously powerful farm input corporations that are, are taking more and more and more of, of the wealth that family farms produce every year. It's, it's literally over the last 35 years, you know, taxpayers have been giving money to farmers in, in the form of farm support programs, but those input suppliers have taken more than a trillion dollars out of Canadian agriculture. Imagine if just a small percentage of that trillion dollars had stayed on the farms and circulated through rural communities and rural businesses. Mm, no, fair enough. Uh, so a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, do you see also this as an opportunity to diversify farm income? And you've been in meetings with me, so you, you know I, I always hammer over, hey, like, what about renewable energy? What about renewable energy? Farmers have these big, beautiful roofs on their barns. Is this a new uh, finite, uh, income stream for them? Absolutely. I mean, that's such a key and important idea, Derek. So I mentioned before, you had about 9,900 years of agriculture being 100% solar powered and farms producing the entire energy supply for their operation. I mean, just think about that. 99% of the time that humans have practiced agriculture, it was solar powered, sun on leaves, turning into grain and grass and hay and, and, and food in the garden. That was the energy supply for everything that happened in agriculture. Then we had 100 years where we threw that away and decided the energy supply for agriculture is going to be fossil fuels and we're going to have to pay somebody to give us those and we're going to use them in ever larger quantities and it's going to become a big you know cost problem and emissions problem the future is just going back to what was normal for 99% of the time and that is agriculture powered as much as possible by solar energy and so when farmers uh, put those solar panels up they, they not only solve their emissions problem, but uh, they can also help curb the, the outflow of money off of their farms and, and start to restore some self-sufficiency, uh, you know, supplying their own energy there. If you've listened to episode 28 of our podcast, you might recognize the name Tony Neal. You might recognize the name anyways because last November he was on CBC's The National. Tony is an agriculture producer in southern Ontario. He actually farms pretty close to where my parents live. But he's probably one of the best examples we have in the country of an agriculture producer doing exactly what Darren just said there. So finding ways to incorporate more solar energy into our agricultural operations. 
So Tony has a solar panels, but he also has an electric tractor. So the energy that the solar panels produce, he can use to power up his tractor. He loves that tractor, by the way. That episode's well worth listening to. I do realize this is a Made in Alberta podcast, and we do have some Made in Alberta on-farm solar examples. And all three of the ones I'm going to name, you can read about on our farmer's blog. So out east in Farintosh, Alberta, you got Vaudette Dairy. Vaudette Dairy uses their solar panels to power up their milking operation. Then way up in Manning, Alberta, you have Northern Lights Farm. Northern Lights Farm uses their solar panels to provide power for their watering system. So they have a veggie operation. And then Greener Pastures Ranching in Busby, Alberta, not too far away from Edmonton. They use their solar panels to keep their deep freezers running, the deep freezers that are holding their beef for direct marketing. As I said, you can read about all three of those farms on our farmer's blog. I'm going to read an excerpt from the story that was done on Vaudette Dairy. The story was actually written by one of the owners, so Courtney Van Assem. These days, I believe that farmers need to plan with a more long-term sustainability plan rather than just an economic plan. Farmers need to look to what we can do to keep running and growing in the future instead of focusing on what will put a dollar in our pockets today. It can be a hard way to plan, and not all decisions need to be made in this way, but to remain doing what we love, farming, will take patience and long-term sustainability planning. Point number five of our climate farm plan, and I can't believe I'm putting it this way, but here goes make solar energy great again. And we could do the same with some of the other renewable energies out there too, like wind, geothermal, maybe even hydro. Addressing the income crisis and the climate crisis at the same time, do you see a need to increase food prices as part of this? No. If you think about any sort of pairing of uh, farm products and, and retail products, so... Uh, think about wheat and bread, uh, pigs and pork chops, cattle and steaks, um, maybe even beer and barley. Uh, I, I've I've done nearly a dozen of these. Every single graph looks the same. There's this 45 degree angle line that goes up and up and up. That's the retail price. And then there's this absolutely flat line across the bottom of the graph. That's the farm gate price. So. In a loaf of bread in the 1970s, you had about 10 cents worth of wheat. and In the 80s, it was 10 cents, and now it's about 10 cents. Yet that loaf of bread goes from 75 cents to a dollar to $2 to $3 up and up it goes. And that the gap between what farmers get and what, what consumers pay just gets wider and wider. And all of that goes into the pocket of retailers and processors and grain companies. Mm-hmm. And and we, we've asked this question to government over and over again. We show them the graph and say, look, they, ha- they used to have to take 75 cents to make a loaf of bread and then a dollar and then two dollars. And it just gets more and more. The, the share taken by retailers and processors gets larger and larger. There can only be two explanations. Either they're becoming ever more inefficient and it costs them more and more, and they're just more wasteful, and somehow they're using more resources. But we don't think that's the answer. And the only other possible answer is they're just using their market power to extract ever larger margins 
and choke off the flow of money that formerly went to farmers. Okay, thanks. So because that gap between what farmers get and what consumers pay gets wider and wider, that means that in no scenario does the grocery store price have to go up in order for farmers to get more. Farmers can get more from that huge chunk that's currently going to the shareholders and executives of the dominant retailers, the dominant processors, and the grain companies. Okay, fair enough. That definitely makes sense. Uh, final follow-up to that question, because uh, this one actually leads into the question that uh, comes up next. Um, I, I can't remember if you talked about this in the report, but uh, carbon offsets, uh, I'm not too sure if it was something that the report put out there as a solution. Since we're just talking about diversifying farm revenue, is this also a way we could diversify farm revenue, or is this not an area we should wade into? This is not an area we should wade into. Uh, offsets, carbon trading schemes, carbon markets, um, derivatives on carbon, all of these things, these financialized market mechanisms tend to work very poorly for farmers. Uh, others tend to take the lion's share, the, the people who aggregate this stuff, the people who speculate in it. Uh, these People say these markets are going to become huge, multi-billion dollar markets. Well, we know what will happen next. The dominant financial institutions will move in and companies like Goldman Sachs will, will take the cream there. But the other thing about offsets is they really facilitate the ongoing production of oil and gas and carbon dioxide while trying to somehow offset that somewhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not something we want to do. Uh, and, and also, the final thing I'll say about offsets is, in terms of the physics of the climate system, offsets don't make any sense. Because when you take carbon out of oil, that carbon had been stably sequestered under the surface of the earth for hundreds of millions of years. When you put it in the atmosphere, it'll essentially stay there permanently, hundreds of years or thousands. But when you offset that into soil or a plant or a tree, it's not going to stay stably there for hundreds of years. It might stay there for just years or maybe decades. So the emission of fossil carbon is essentially permanent on human timescales, but sequestration is quite temporary by comparison. And saying that the one offsets the other just is, it, it just doesn't make sense in terms of the physics. Hmm, interesting. Here, thank you for addressing what can be a contentious issue. Going to move on to the next contentious, contentious issue, so soil carbon sequestration. Uh, it's you know it's becoming a lot more well known. Like I've only been doing this job for about four years, and I feel like just the general public's understanding of soil carbon sequestration. I don't fully get it, but it's definitely increased. And I do find sometimes it's held up as like, oh, this is the silver bullet. This is how agriculture is going to address uh, climate change. Uh, but, you, you know, you pointed out in your report and you see, you know, super important for soil health, very important for ecosystems and likely nutrition. But in the report, you also pointed out it's not quite a climate solution. Uh, hopefully I'm not misquoting you here, but if you, you want to explain that one, that would be great. Yeah, well, thank you for your careful reading the report because I think you got that completely right. Okay. Uh, what we say in the report is that Carbon sequestration is a soil health bonanza 
it's something we should pursue, but it's not a climate solution, not an emissions solution. So just in a little more detail, we really, really need to do everything we can to, to adopt cropping systems and grazing systems that very rapidly increase the health of soils. And, and as they do that, increase the, the percentage of soil organic carbon. We need to grow grass and, and crops as well as we can so that that carbon goes into the soil and we start to restore those soils to the, the kind of health and carbon levels that we saw before we broke the, the prairies. Mm. So nothing I say about sequestration should in any way be taken as uh, somehow arguing against best possible cropping and grazing systems. We need to do everything we're doing on that front now and, and more. But the thing that people often don't realize is that soil carbon sequestration has limits, that any given piece of soil can only sequester so much carbon, and as it gets closer to the limit, the rate decreases and eventually falls to zero. And when we think about the long history of soil, it starts to make sense. So in the prairies, for instance, when Europeans came here and started breaking the prairie soils, they were breaking up soil that had been rotationally grazed by herds of bison this is unbroken, deep-rooted, multi-species grassland, rotationally grazed by bison for 10,000 years. There's nothing that we can do in cropping and grazing systems in a decade or a century, century that is going to put more carbon into those soils than those bison managed to put in there in 10,000 years. There is an absolute maximum uh, in our report. We call it the bison prairie maximum. So you have the starting point uh, 100 or so years ago, call it 100 units of carbon. We brought that down by a third or a half or more. So maybe the piece of soil now has 50 units of carbon. We can put some of that back in, maybe get that back up to 75, 80, 85 units of carbon, but we can't take it to 150 or 200. Um, and I, I say that as a blanket statement. It, it might be possible in a few places with really heroic and rare efforts to get it higher than those levels that the original prairie contained. I'm not saying that no one could ever do that, but you, you couldn't do that broadly. Um, you, you just couldn't. As a matter of fact, the, the, the experts, the scientists say, not only is it really, really rare and hard, to exceed that bison prairie maximum, you probably won't even come close because the soil has been degraded over time. You've lost soil to erosion and you're trying to do it uh, using cropping systems, for instance. And a cropping system will almost never get you to a, a level of, of carbon that would be higher than that prairie grazing system that was there for 10,000 years. So key is that the sequestration process is limited uh, and it's more or less limited to the amount of carbon that was released from the soil through previous farming systems. So some things are complete fantasy. Uh, some people have seen the documentary Kiss the Ground. Mm, yeah. a, lot, a lot of things in that documentary are quite good. Uh, a lot of things that, that I could certainly agree with, 
some really good practices. But for instance, there's a graph they put up, I think, twice. Paul Hawken shows this graph of atmospheric carbon, and it inflects sharply downward around 2020, and it goes right back down to pre-industrial levels, and somehow this can be accomplished through soil carbon sequestration, grazing, and cropping. What he's saying, in essence, is not only can the soils absorb all the carbon that have been previously released from the soils, they can also absorb all the carbon that's been released from oil. It's just not possible. So, so the idea that you can suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil, eh, that's a fantasy. But you can, you can take quite a bit of carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. But uh, it's only a fraction of what we release through burning fossil fuels. And the final thing I'll say about sequestration, the reason it's important for people to think critically about this is because companies like Monsanto, now called Bayer, the companies that want us to continue pursuing very high input, high emission agriculture, want to mask those emissions through sequestration. So they don't want you to talk about the hundred you know, units of emissions that are coming from their high input, high emission system. They want to say, well, there's 100 units uh, coming out, but, you know, we've got 50 units of sequestration, so let's just call it 50 units of, uh, of emissions. But what they don't tell you is that over time, that sequestration effect is going to diminish as the soil starts to reach its, its limit, but the emissions aren't. So over time, that masking effect of sequestration is going to, is going to fall away, and you're just going to be left with a high input, high emission system. So it's important to kind of keep the two sets of numbers separate and, and really look at what the, the real emissions are and then look in a different way at what the sequestration tonnage is, but don't subtract one for the other. All right. So what Darren just said there about soil carbon sequestration, this might not sit very well with some of you. When Darren says soil carbon sequestration is not a climate solution, he's not disputing or refuting the fact that carbon can be sequestered by soil. He mentioned that soil carbon sequestration is a soil health bonanza. His statement is more a reference to the amount of carbon that soil can store. When we first broke the prairies with plows and tills, we released a lot of soil carbon in the process, and we know that carbon dioxide can remain in the atmosphere for quite a long time, so probably a good chunk of that's still up there. So getting that amount of carbon back into the soil would be an accomplishment in itself, and it would be pretty tricky to do because if you think of it before Europeans showed up, Everything out in the prairies was perennials pretty much. Now we have annuals. Food production is dependent on annuals. Annuals just can't compete with perennials when it comes to soil carbon sequestration. Although there are some groups like the Land Institute who are working on creating perennial pulses, grains, oil seeds. So maybe one day they'll be able to go toe-to-toe. Adopting agriculture practices that promote soil carbon sequestration is something that we should do. Soil carbon is a key element to soil health. But like all things in life, soil has a finite capacity for how much carbon it can store. So what I think Darren's trying to say is soil carbon sequestration is not the solution for greenhouse gas emissions that were produced because of the burning of fossil fuels for energy. 
Certainly, it's going to help when it comes to addressing climate change. It's just not the silver bullet. We need a diversity of solutions the same way we need diversity on farms and ranches. So point number six of our plan is going to be participate in the soil health bonanza and just try and get as much carbon into your soil as possible. Your soil will be happy, your bottom line will be happy, and honestly, just less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now would be a good thing. And if you're unfamiliar with Drawdown or Kiss the Ground, uh, Drawdown is a book now turned movements all about different climate solutions the world can implement. Kiss the Ground is that Woody Harrelson documentary about regenerative agriculture. It's or it was up on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is. But if you watch it, you're going to recognize that Gabe Brown's in it. Even Dr. Christine Nichols is in it, who, by the way, recently moved to Alberta. Uh, obviously, agriculture producers have a role in addressing climate change in the sector, but the food system is not just agriculture, that there's a lot of different stakeholders involved. So I'm curious, what are some of the roles, supports, policies government can put in place to give producers a helping hand? And also curious if there's a role for consumers, but we can start with governments first. So governments really set the tone. And if the prime directive is maximize exports and and yield and production, you're going to get a system where people maximize inputs and thereby, in an unintended consequences way, maximize emissions. So we need to change that. We need to start talking about uh, resilience, sustainability, maximizing efficiency, minimizing input use, and thereby minimizing emissions. So we we need uh, a rethink at the highest government level. We also need from government uh, support for farmers who want to reduce emissions and and to do so, reduce inputs. So we need need agrologists. We need public servant, independent agrologists that can work with farmers and give them the support and information they need to find ways to produce adequate yields while using less and less uh, fertilizer and other purchased inputs. And, and those agrologists are really, really key. That, that's, that's one of the main things government can do. Uh, because right now, a lot of farmers are dependent upon the people who sell them inputs to get advice on how many inputs to use. Not surprisingly, you get things like we have now where fertilizer use doubles or, or triples or quadruples. So that independent advice on how to use fewer inputs and how to find alternatives to purchased inputs, how to utilize crop rotations or legumes or cover crops or other ways to uh, lower input use. Lots of work for government. And I, I should congratulate the government, though, too. Uh, in December, we saw the federal government come out with a target to reduce emissions from nitrogen fertilizer by 30% by 2030. And there's a lot of unanswered questions, but uh, that's an interesting first step. And then we want to see the funding for that, and we want to see real resources put behind that, because a lot of the experts say that you can reduce those emissions by 30%. Uh, you can reduce tonnage. The tonnage reduction wouldn't be quite 30%, but it would be significant, and at the same time, maintain yield. And if that happens, the margins go up, farm profitability goes up, and we can hopefully uh, keep more farmers on the land. 
In terms of what consumers can do, uh, one of the things they can do is they can make connections with farmers. They can ask questions about how things are produced. They can look for labels that, that indicate that maybe this product is produced more sustainably, uh, reduced, produced with fewer inputs, uh, coming from a, an organic system, a regenerative system, a, a lower input system, and, and also just make connections within their communities uh, directly to farmers who might be trying to produce in different ways. Maybe a, a beef producer at the, uh, at the farmer's market who's really thinking about soil and grass management and trying to maximize the environmental benefits that those animals grazing on diverse grasslands can produce. So yeah, the, the more, the more consumers know and the more, the, the tighter the connections they make with their food, probably the, the better the emissions outcomes will be. Okay. And in regards, uh, so just a follow-up question to the government setting that tone. Now, this could be a whole other discussion, uh, debating if we have a free market or not, uh, but how, how does the government create or set that tone in something that's meant to be a free market, that you know, it's just consumer demand that's going to sort things out, or it's supply and demand that's going to sort things out. So um, I, I don't know if it's more of like an incentive uh, question, but yeah, how exactly would a government set that tone in a free market? Again, I think it comes down to to the the signals that are sent. We're starting to see signaling, and I mentioned that thirty percent reduction in mm. nitrous oxide. Uh, we're starting to see that in the future, emission reduction will be increasingly important, not just production and, and input maximization. Um, but yeah, it, it really is a a big shift and. There's a couple of ways of framing it. One way of framing it is that we need to rely more and more on biology and less and less on industry. Mm-hmm. You know, as industry has elbowed out biology as the, the main supplier of, uh, of fertility and other things on the farm, emissions have gone up. We need to, to some extent, reverse that, but at the same time, maintain adequate yields and hopefully increase net income. Mm. So, yeah, more from biology, uh, less from industry. And, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of potential to, to maintain those outputs while using fewer inputs and, and fewer emissions. Okay. Um, just to rephrase the question, is, is there, so there's certain programs that the federal and provincial government are, have influence over, like, like CAP, for example. Is there adjustments we can make to cap that you could think of that would incentivize farmers to start uh, farming more climate friendly? I think what's going to happen is certain farmers are going to get more interested in this initially. Uh, There'll be some farmers even now that are trying to find ways to reduce emissions. Uh, Some things that government could do, for instance, might be a program uh, of best management practices insurance, BMP insurance. So mm. for farmers who are taking real steps to reduce emissions and input use, government could maybe look at a program that, uh, you know, if their yield fell more than a certain amount and their margins contracted, the government could step in and, and sort of protect them from that risk. That would enable farmers to be more 
more daring in, in what they tried on their farms if they they knew they weren't risking a, uh, an emissions or a, sorry an income decline so that's one example mm-hmm. um, other things they could do they could uh, they could get serious about maintaining the number of farmers on the land and they could they could look at a lot of their programs through a farm income lens we're always surprised at what the government measures and what they don't and what they prioritize and what they're thinking about. And they don't seem to be prioritizing net farm income. They, they prioritize output, that top line on the graph, the revenue line that goes up and up and up, but they don't seem to want to prioritize the, the net income line. Last February, right on Canada's Agriculture Day, Farmers for Climate Solutions, the national coalition that both Rural Roots and the National Farmers Union are a part of, released its recommendations for the 2021 federal budget. Farmers for Climate Solutions recommended the federal government invest $300 million into programs to help reduce emissions in agriculture. The recommendations, which were bundled together in a report, outline the six high-impact programs the federal government could use to reduce emissions in egg. Those programs would focus on the following land management practices and farm technology. So better nitrogen management, so we can do more with less synthetic fertilizer. Cover cropping, rotational grazing, protecting riparian areas as well as wildlife habitat on farms, on-farm clean energy, and my personal favorite, shining a spotlight on those agriculture producers who are already doing some or all of the above, even though nobody asked them to. They just did it because they decided it was the right thing for their farmer ranch. Point number seven of our climate farm plan. Provide agriculture producers with the support to get the job done. My final question is, how big of a paradigm shift is this going to be for agriculture to switch to climate-friendly agriculture? So if I just take my very, you know, I've only been in this sector for a few years. uh, When I look at agriculture, it is now and where we need to go to. My impression, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, climate-friendly agriculture means exports go down, yields go down, productivity goes down. Uh, And these are things that we have a lot of emphasis on, and some of them for very good reasons. So I'm wondering, first of all, am I wrong in that statement, or maybe parts of that statement are wrong? And I don't know, is it such a bad thing if exports go down and yields go down and productivity go down? Boy, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, so let me say, first of all, that things like yield and production don't have to go down or they don't have to go down significantly. Uh, we can probably maintain or almost maintain our output at current levels while reducing input use and, and increasing margin. Having said that, there is a big shift coming. Canada has committed to net zero emissions by 2050 and farmers need to really think hard about where we're going so that we can we can steer this thing so we can lead this thing because otherwise if we don't take control others will people who maybe don't know our farms as well and don't have our interests so 
so firmly in hand. So <clears throat> farmers need to think about just how big the transformation is going to be as we move toward 2050. And I'll, I'll give you an example of just the magnitude of the change, not, not, the size, not the direction, but the magnitude. If you think about how much change there was between 1900 and 1950, you start to get a sense of how much change there might be between 2000 and 2050. So if you imagine a farm in 1900, no electricity, no vehicles, no tractors, no radio, no, none of that. And then by 1950, all of those things have, uh, have materialized and the farm family, it would be rare, but they might even be taking a, a trip in an airplane. Mm. Just everything changed in that 50 years between 1900 and 1950. Now, between 2000 and 2050, we're not looking at reversing that, but we are looking at change of potentially a comparable magnitude. So between 1900 and 1950, we replaced a solar-powered, zero-input, zero-emission agricultural system with one that was fossil fuel-powered, high-input, and high-emission, and it got to be higher emission as time went on. And now we face the challenge of doing largely the opposite. We have to replace a high-input, fossil-fueled, high-emission system with one that, that is the opposite. And uh, we're not going back in time, but we have to go forward in ways that really do mean some very significant changes. And again, that, that raises concerns, it raises real anxiety, but changes of similar magnitude have happened in the past. And that's why I highlight that period from 1900 to 1950. And changes of similar magnitude are going to be happening throughout the economy in every sector. So yeah, it, it, is, it is a set of big changes. And for that reason, farmers need to, to think about that and they need to take control of this and ignoring it, denying it, hoping it's going to go away, pretending it's not happening, uh, just being obstructionist isn't probably a good strategy because if, if that's the strategy people take, uh, someone else is going to end up in the driver's seat in Canadian agriculture steering us into that future. And, and we at the National Farmers Union believe Farmers need to get active, get informed, and, and take that driver's role. Hmm. Great. Um, I'm curious with exports, like presumably there's still a place for exports in all this for Canadian agriculture, right? And I, I do realize like we're really export oriented. I think the last stat I looked at, like 75% of Canadian wheat's exported out of the country. Uh, will there still be a role for exports in all this? Yeah, nothing I've said. Uh, I've not said anything about reducing exports. If uh, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, if uh, if production continues at roughly the current level, uh, exports would continue at roughly uh, the current level. Um, we might want to reduce some imports and, and also reduce some exports and supply more of our food locally. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of just you know, redundant trade, sort of chewing and throwing of food, uh, Canadian beef going to America and American beef coming back to Canada, you know, shipping 
prairie wheat to Montreal to make into bagels and then ship them back to the prairies. So some of that, I think, could be fixed. What people have to think about is the current far-flung food system is a, a creation of a time when fossil fuels were incredibly cheap and plentiful. And we've created a global and, and globalized food system that really maximizes food miles. And food miles have just gone up and up and up over the last, you know, couple, three generations. And we probably need to bend that trend line downward. So the food miles have to start going down and down and down. And that doesn't mean a reduction in production necessarily. Uh, to some extent, just the opposite. We're about to add billions more people to the planet. So it would be a surprising thing if somebody in Canada, one of the, the largest food producing units on earth, was saying, hmm, we probably need to produce less. There's going to be billions more people, we're going to produce less. But we probably need to restructure a global food system so that we just ship food less and, and move it around in a more efficient way. We need to do a lot of other things too. We need to stop wasting food. We've got about 40% of Canadian food going to waste. We're, we're denutritionalizing food, turning nutritious food into cocoa puffs. Since Darren brought up cutting back food miles, I want to bring up something that I find kind of interesting, something that's only happened in the last six months of working with Rural Roots. Over the last six months, the idea of doing a food hub has come up a lot in the work that Rural Roots to Climate Solutions does. When I say a lot, I mean twice, but that is 200% more than it ever did in the first three years of Rural Roots. And when I'm talking about a food hub, I'm not talking about setting up a food hub in Calgary or Edmonton. I'm talking about setting up food hubs in rural communities so agriculture producers can feed the folks in town. We did apply for funding to try and get a food hub set up in Stettler. Unfortunately, we didn't get the funding, but I just got a feeling it's, that's not going to be the last time we try and set up a food hub somewhere in rural Alberta. The person who put the idea in our heads in the first place was Janice Shelton of Sand Springs Ranch in Lac La Biche. We recently published an article on our farmer's blog about Sand Springs' very diverse and innovative farming operation and this is what Janice had to say about food hubs in that article. Why on earth are we bringing in so much food to our local grocery stores? There's never been a better time to set up a food hub in rural communities. Bringing us to our eighth and final point of our plan, feed local. I know it sounds like eat local and that part's implied, but the idea is we want to feed our local communities. The last words of the episode are going to go to Darren because he really brings it home at the end. But just before we hear what he has to say, let's just quickly go over our eight-point climate farm plan. So point number one, probably the most important point. The plan can't just be about reducing greenhouse gas emissions because we can also build resilient farms and ranches at the exact same time. Point number two, support the family farm to keep our community strong. Point number three reduce our dependency on chemical inputs. Point number four, be a team player, do what we can to reduce methane production. Point number five, make solar great again. I should really get like a baseball cap with that on the front. 
Point number six, be a full participant in the soil health bonanza and get as much carbon as you can into the soil. Point number seven, provide agriculture producers with the supports they need to get the job done. And point number eight, feed our local communities and people in the city as well. I am liking this plan. Fair enough, this plan is very light on details. But if you haven't figured this out about me after listening to 37 episodes, I am not a details guy. I am very much a dreamer. I leave the details to guys like Darren. So where we're at with agriculture right now is on the one side, we've got a lot of risks. We've got increasing destabilization of the climate, and that will set in train a whole bunch of other risks and concerns and impacts. This also creates a lot of opportunities to really rethink and restructure the Canadian food system and move away from this maximum food mile, maximum fuel use, maximum emission system, and and start thinking about nutrition, about making food more local, more regional, more delicious, increasing the number of people that that are farming and producing food, increasing net incomes and margins as we become less dependent on purchased inputs and sending money to the the globally dominant input corporations. So one of the things that we say in our upcoming report is aside from some of the the problems that, that climate change creates, it also creates an opening to move away from the kind of food system we have and, and create a bit of a food system renaissance where we really think about soil and people and farms and communities and, and, and really turn the trend lines in the direction they're going. So not to in any way minimize the, the, the risks and some of the anxiety that's going to be created for farm families, but just to get everyone to think about the fact that this is a moment that we can create change. Things are breaking loose to some extent. The old certainties are being displaced by the biophysical limits of, of the climate. And so a lot of changes are going to have to be made. And, and the changes that we're forced to make open the door for a lot of changes that, that we want to make, to make the food that we eat more interesting, more nutritious, more delicious, produced by people we know, and, and maybe the chance uh, to, to produce some of that food ourselves. So um, there's some, some negatives for sure. But uh, as much as possible, we should also take the opportunity to to really uh, get some positives out of this as well. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars. We assist communities in rural Alberta develop their own community renewable energy projects, We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, there's this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka in Athabasca, Brenda Barrett in Alex, and Trina Boyles and Jennifer Ford in Peace Country. Karen Mountain of Mountain Media edited this episode. Funding for the podcast comes from a variety of foundations based in Alberta and across Canada. 
my parts of this episode were recorded in Calgary. So that means parts of this podcast were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.